Pop culture characters such as comic book superheroes and Disney princesses have captivated our imagination for decades. From Wonder Woman to Cinderella, some of their stories have challenged cultural norms while others have emphasized them. For good or for bad, pop culture characters have served as role models for many. Why do their stories captivate us? Are they a reflection of our society and values, or can they promote and provoke social change? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Bias, the Open-Minded Perspective podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Craig Albert, Associate Professor of Political Science at Augusta University. Today, we are talking to Dr. Ruth McClellan Nugent, a pop culture historian, Associate Professor, and Interim Chair of History at Augusta University. Thank you so much, Dr. McClellan Nugent, for joining us today. It's great to be here, Craig. This is awesome. Let's get right into this. Uh, can you just briefly describe some examples of how comic books and pop culture illustrate social justice issues throughout history? Sure. I mean, one of the interesting things I don't think people always remember about comic books is that they really originated in the late 1930s and early 1940s, which is a, an era of tremendous social upheaval, not only in the United States, but of course the world. Um, and so when you look especially at those comic books during World War II, many of them have specific anti-fascist um, meanings and symbolism. Uh, they're pro-democracy and emphasizing things like, you know, we may think of uh, uh, being pro-democracy as a very milquetoast position, but it's a very real, something very real and at threat in the Second World War. Um, and in fact, the racism and the um, anti-free speech and, you know, all the other things that, that are we associate with fascism is something that, that has worked out in some of those, those comic books um, really early on. And then in the 1950s and 1960s, we see other messages coming in. Um, some of them become much more explicit, like uh, many of us are familiar, for example, with Black Panther uh, yep. One of the one of the first black superheroes, you know, something that Stan Lee was really interested in civil rights and the civil rights movement and saw this. Hey, we've got a need here to fill. Now, if you read those early Black Panther scripts, they weren't always the most informed about what Africa was really like. <laughs> There's, oh, we look at them and we see the stereotypes, oh. but it was an attempt, you know, to fill that void and show a positive role model. Just as in the 1940s, Wonder Woman had been an attempt explicitly to show this female strength and female role model uh, in a time when many people didn't believe that women could do things like join the military right. during the Second World yeah. War. So, you know, comic books have always had engagement uh, with a lot of different social justice and civil rights issues of their day. How did they start? Like, why comic books? Like, why those instead of different forms of writing or something? Like, do you know if, who put that together? Like, let's put these, you know, comics out there. Well, it's not that there's a particular strategy per se. Um, you know, the comic book industry grows out of the uh, cheap book trade of New York City. Um, and many of the early comic book artists and writers were very young. Stanley was 17 years old when he started writing. I mean, they're 20, they're wow. 21. Not surprisingly, a lot of them reflect uh, the sort of interests and ideas of a 21-year-old guy in 1940. It's like, yeah, we'll have him be a superhero. He can fly, but let's bounce off him. This is cool. Uh, but, you know... The two men who created uh, Superman, Schuster and Siegel, um, they were both of Jewish extraction. Mm. They both had relatives in Europe. They both kind of knew some of the things that were going on in Europe. And, you know, think about Superman's origin. He comes from the old country, the old world that's exploding and is falling in on itself because of the arrogance of its people. And he comes to the United States and he's an immigrant. Um, and in fact, one of those guys, Siegel, was himself an immigrant from Canada, but both of them had parents who had immigrated from Europe. So there's a lot even going on with something 
you know, as simple as Superman, but his belief in truth, justice, and the American way, that is the vision of the two sons of immigrants. How fascinating. Like, yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense when you say it, but I never realized that when I read the comic books originally or even from the movies, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and many of the early uh, comic book writers, these young men, they were from Jewish backgrounds, often with European connections, uh, in part because the, the book trade in New York uh, especially the kind of inexpensive paperback trade. Is that the uh, dime books? Some or? of the yeah, they have came out of the dime books. A lot of that had been you know had been invested in by Jewish investors. So these were maybe their uncles or their grandfathers or someone else that they had a connection to, who was willing to invest in the comic books. And there weren't just superhero comics. They also had the sort of you know great literature comic books. Uh, whatever we're tr we're trying out what to sell. You know this was a new medium, uh, appealed to young people, and it was inexpensive. That was a really key thing. But a lot of grown ups read the comics too. Um, and there were more than just superhero comics. There were comics that were romance comics that told romance stories. Oh, there were comics that were sort of Western adventure stories. Uh, army stories were very popular for a while. And some of those survive. Like we still, a lot of people still know Sergeant Rock. Like that's one of the... That's, he goes way back, you know, but there used to be a lot more like Sergeant Rock. We still have Archie comics, yeah. but there used to be a lot of those teenage joke comics, fun comics. Um, so there, there was a very big, for a while, it was a very big genre. Is that industry generally something that, that tackles issues of social justice or is it some comics tackle this while others don't? I think it would be more this, the second, what you said there. And sometimes it's very intentional and thought out. And, and I know we're going to talk about Wonder Woman a little bit and that. And sometimes it's more sort of um, just this is something important to the writers. Like I said, I, the, the, the two guys who invent Superman, you know, they're not necessarily these deep thinkers about everything, but they are reflecting the perspectives that they have, you know, in their families and in their communities kind of as, uh, you know, immigrants and, and their enthusiasm for their new country and its ways shows, shows up and their concern. There's, there's actually a, there's a Superman comic from, it's before the U.S. gets into World War II, where Superman flies in and he beats up Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and he's going to end all the war in the world by beating these two guys up. It's pretty utopianistic. I mean, and he's actually, yeah, he's actually got, a, there's a line where he hits Hitler, and he says, that's a non-Aryan suck to the jaw. <laughs> that's, that's in your publication. Yeah, so yeah. I'll post uh, in the show notes some of your publications, if you don't mind, so yeah, the readers great. can uh, take. Let's get into some of the specifics here. Uh, how have comics discussed and illustrated topics such as racism or misogyny? Uh, here I'm particularly interested in your take on Wonder Woman in the 70s and the return to WW2 content. What was that relationship or fascination with World War II as an area to discuss racism and sexism? And we talked a little bit about yeah. this, but we can focus more in on Wonder Woman and, and her role in this. Well, let me talk a little about the origins of Wonder Woman and World War II. That's a comic that was first published in 1941. And her creator is a little different than those guys I just talked about. He's actually really different from those guys I just talked about because he's a middle-aged uh, Harvard-educated PhD in psychology who had been a professor for years and had kind of turned to uh, more popular psychology. He wrote sort of self-help books and mm -hmm. columns. Uh, and then he also wrote, he, he was, wrote some screenplays. He was very interested in screenwriting. He wrote manuals on screenwriting. Just a really interesting man. And he had a genuine appreciation for the idea that women were capable of a lot of leadership. And that was a time when people really did not view women generally as capable of leadership. I mean, Europe... This is the 40s? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a political scientist, Craig. Uh, the first female cabinet member 
was Madeline Albright, cabinet member, Secretary of Labor. Mm-mm. Sorry, sorry, no, I shouldn't have done you that put to me you. on the spot. <laughs> sorry, it was Francis Perkins oh. under FDR, but FDR—that was the first time there had been a, a, a cabinet-level female secretary, and that was sort of weird and controversial. Like, can she do that? Right. Uh, when the army started exploring the possibility of having women officers in the Second World War, there was tremendous pushback from churches, from, you know, people who said, if we have women in the military, our entire, our entire society will be upside down. And there was so much pushback that while um, in, during World War II, women were recruited as both enlisted and officers. They set up a separate command structure in the Navy and the Army and all of the forces so that a woman officer would never give a command to a man. Get out of here. I'm telling the truth. What? So that's the world. That's the world in which William Moulton Marston is writing. And he's saying, no, no, women have leadership potential. They might lead a little differently sometimes. And it's, a, it's kind of stereotype. But he's like, they are very good at, you know, caring about other people. Uh, but they can also do these more masculine style. Um, and so... He had written about this before in other more formal psychological textbooks. And by the way, I shouldn't say it's not just him. His wife, Elizabeth Holloway Marston, uh, also held a master's degree in psychology and co-wrote many articles with him and herself is a very interesting person. She worked for insurance companies and was an efficiency expert and she helped with the idea of Wonder Woman. So his idea was we'll take this superhero and we'll give her the physical strength that we associate with a Superman. Right. We'll give her that and have all the cool powers and, and give her cool gadgets. You know, she has lots of cool gadgets, but we'll make her a woman and we'll also allow her to express some love and caring. And his idea was that this was a unique superhero that would help both boys and girls appreciate women in this kind of leadership role. So he he created it for that purpose. For that purpose. And I think, I know that you you actually sent me this quote that, that she was created as a kind of propaganda for, for this new kind of woman. And the storylines in the 1940s, I mean, there's one about the Women's Army Corps that emphasizes the need for women to join the army and, and serve their country, you know, at a time when that's <laughs> controversial. Yeah. Um, you know, there are storylines about, there's a, a villainess who manages to reform Baroness von Gunther, she's a German villainess. But we find out she's really a villain because the Nazis have kidnapped her children and are threatening them. So, And she goes through this whole reform process. So Wonder Woman not only catches the bad guys, but often helps reform them. Psychology. Right. There's a whole, and there's a whole oh. psychological aspect um, to what goes on there. So that's the World War II kind of background. Wonder Woman is this product of World War II. And then, you know, Marston dies um, in the mid-1940s. Wonder Woman is passed on to other writers. They don't always kind of get the character. And she goes through different iterations. Um, In fact, at one point in the 1960s, they decide to redevelop her as this sort of white-suited, Emma Peel, catsuit person with spy, with no powers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Very interesting. Uh, Um, And then... In 1972, uh, Gloria Steinem, right, famous feminist Gloria Steinem, is the one that convinced DC Comics to return Wonder Woman to the the powered version. She put Wonder Woman on the first cover of Ms. Magazine. Interesting. It's Wonder Woman. It says Wonder Woman for President. Wow. Peace and Justice, 1972. Um, Because she'd been a little girl in World War II and read those comics. So it was an influence to her personally. So Marston's idea worked. 
Yep. If you think about it, like there were people like Steinem who were reading these comics and thinking, wow, women can do more. I love this comic. But she didn't love what it had become. And so then, you know, this this uh, this thing about World War II in the 1970s, you have the TV show with Linda Carter. Many of us have seen it in reruns or if you're old like me, you might have watched it when you were a little kid. And it's set in World War II and the comics returned to World War II for a while. And what I find interesting about those 70s comics is it allowed them to talk about the gender issues of feminism and, and women facing oppression, but kind of in this little bit safer way. We're not going to talk about it in the contemporary world where it's a little more uncomfortable. Oh, we'll set it in yeah. World War II and we'll make the bad guys the Nazis who were misogynistic in many of their propaganda and their beliefs um, and patriarchal and all those things. And, um, you know, but we're really sort of talking about some of the contemporary 1970s issues, too. But there's always been that World War II connection to Wonder Woman. Do you know what the fascination in the 70s overall was with World War II? Like, why, why did they focus on that uh, at that time? So there's a lot of nostalgia in the 1970s and 1980s for the Second World War period. You know, there's um, a lot of popular culture starts examining World War II themes. Of course, I mean, there had been movies and things about the Second World War or in, earlier, too. But I think at that point, it, it starts to become nostalgic. You know, there's a certain nostalgia lag in, in popular culture. Uh, like right now, I see that the 90s are starting are yeah. having this, <laughs> which is so weird <laughs> for those of us of a certain age. That's really weird. You know, it, it takes a while for it really to sort of get going. But I also think that World War II, you know, it's remembered as this time of incredible unity. Right, The country stood together, mm. which, you know. Maybe not as much as we think. Right. <laughs> uh, people didn't voluntarily do rationing. But still, there's this sense that people came together. They, they, you know, they were very patriotic. They wanted to serve their country. And if you look at what's going on um, in the 1970s, you know, the U.S. has been through Vietnam. It's been through this mm. you know, time of terrible social upheaval. And World War II is something that you know, more conservative people can look at and say, you know, this was a good war. Why weren't we more like that? now in Vietnam? Why didn't we support our boys in Vietnam the way we did in World War II? But more liberal people can also look at World War II, I think, and say, you know, the United States was really fighting for something here. We were fighting for democracy. Yeah. We were fighting for these liberal values. So I think that part of the appeal of World War II in that popular culture is that there's something almost everyone can kind of latch onto and see themselves in. Yeah, it you know? appealed to everybody a bit, and they could identify with it. And the other thing is that by the 1970s and 80s, some Americans were willing to start grappling with World War II being a little more complicated. Mm. So, for example, you had, um, and some of the darker aspects, I should say, you, you had the TV series Holocaust, which was a miniseries that is really a ground, groundbreaking event in uh, U.S. popular culture history. Everybody watched this series. And it was one of the first times that the Holocaust comes into the popular imagination. And it's really shocking in some ways. It followed on the, the heels of Roots, which had kind of broken some of that ground of right. doing these uncomfortable stories. And Holocaust, you know, it was shown in Germany, this American show, to kind of introduce Germans to what was going on. <sighs> um, but you also start to get some public discussion in the U.S. in the late 70s about reparations for Japanese Americans who had been interned during the Second World War. And that's kind of a darker side of the war that, you know, Americans have to grapple with. Um, so I think it's a combination of, on one hand, there's a nostalgia for the good stuff, but there's also maybe we have enough distance to start talking about, 
in popular discourse the darker aspects of the war. I assume that they had to, to rethink about the, the nuclear bomb as well during that time or the, the, the methodology of firebombing Dresden in Germany and, and what that meant because the cameras weren't so up close in World War II the way it happened in Vietnam. So I assume the American popular psyche had to reevaluate even American strategy uh, in World War II based on what they yeah. saw, you know, with concrete out there in, in war. In, this is Walter concrete uh, who, who was over in, in Vietnam in Vietnam. Right. Mm-hmm. And they saw everything up front and, yeah, and it's interesting that in terms of comic books, in D.C. in particular, um, there's kind of this wave of nostalgia in the 70s, and a lot of comics have uh, some kind of World War II return. And, of course, for the comic book creators, many of them had been kids in the Second World War. Those were the comics they had read as children. So there is reinvention of old characters. You know, one of the articles that you read that I wrote, uh, Craig, is about this this uh, this group called the All-Star Squadron yeah. that Roy Thomas, uh, who is a comic book writer, put together um, some of his favorite World War II characters and then in a couple new ones. And, you know, did entire stories set during World War II that, that examined... Um, there were characters who were part who were interned in these camps. There's actually a character who uh, reflects the use of the bomb. There's an atomic character. Oh, wow. He grapples with race riots in Detroit and racial unrest against African-Americans in the 1940s. Uh, I mean, the comic takes on some pretty serious themes, of course, with people in spandex flying around and doing superhero things. Right. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, superheroes are just a metaphor to talk about some of those things. It's like, uh, what's the Star Trek episode where they have the, the two races, one of them's half white on this side and the other one's half black on that side. And it's like a metaphor for the social conflict of the 1960s and uh, in so science comic, fiction. Yeah, you know, so I mean, comic, science fiction and comic books, they always have kind of done this, I think. You know, I haven't been a big comic book person most of my life. The Avengers series brought me like the joy that could come from that. And I, I had no idea that they were such complicated, like literature, really. Like they're, they're, they're characters that have storylines and everything. The Walking Dead comics is what really mm. brought that out to me and how they, they touch on some serious issues in, in the Walking Dead comics. It's fascinating that, I mean, because you can use comic books as as history to, to show or to demonstrate, or I assume like, like you must teach this in some of the classes, like use comic books as illustrations of American history. And I think that that's just so fascinating to find uh, different genres to bring to people, to, to give history, to give understandings of social issues or how the culture expresses that is just fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, and, and we were just talking about these these comic books in the 70s set during World War II. You know, I can re- there's one... DC comic book that has a storyline of Wonder Woman and Superman throughout it are sort of fighting over whether or not it's okay for FDR to use nuclear weapons. Like they found out about the atomic bomb. And of course the big set piece is a fight between Superman and Wonder Woman. I mean, we all want to see that. We, we want to see that, how that's going to go, but the social commentary throughout it. And it's interesting that Wonder Woman is saying, no, this is a step too far. We cannot do this. This will unleash horrible things on humanity. And Superman is saying, well, it's the only way to win the war. You know, this, this we've got to sort of do this. And in the end, they're both sort of walk away and they're like, well, FDR would never do anything. He, he would never use these weapons because they've had this conversation with FDR. And it's true. FDR never used those weapons. That's right. <laughs> uh, so you have this great historical irony that really... Uh, this argument was not settled, you know, and you could put faith in one man not to use them, but 
Right. As an institution. Oh, that's yeah. and interesting. That's, I think that story is from like 1976. Wow. There seems to be a, some Roman Greco mythology at work in, in Wonder Woman. Could you talk about this a bit and why the comic book creators use that particular storyline? Well, I mentioned that William Moulton Marston was a psychologist. And he comes through psychology when there's a lot of use of kind of archetypes, classical archetypes. And also, you know, he was born in the 1890s. He came through school... Let's see, he finished his Harvard in, I think, 1915. Um, he's in the Army briefly uh, in World War I. But he came through school when a time when every you know, young middle-class man learned mythology because they learned Greek and Latin, classical. It was just very familiar to people. Right. So they're both psychological types, and then they are also something everybody knows. So he used them as symbolism. So he sets up this kind of cosmos where the god Mars, the god of war, he makes this god of masculine aggression out of control, which in the 1930s, there's a lot of. Right. right? Think about Mussolini and that strutting, macho, uh, fascist ideology that is in some ways, you know, this ultimate, um, macho is a word I've used, but it's got this kind of hyper-masculinity to right. it, right? And then he sets against that the goddess of love, um, Aphrodite, and he, he, by the way, Marston would mix up Greek and Roman all the time. <laughs> so he sets her up, but as more of a mother goddess almost, like the goddess of, of love, not necessarily sexual love, right. but more love in general. And he has the Amazons are her servants. So sh they are set up to fight the forces of Mars, the god of war. And Mars, he has all these complicated, again, he borrows these different gods, but he gives Mars these sidekicks, the Duke of Deception, the Count of Conquest, and the Earl of Greed. Interesting. And he has storylines like where, you know, like so um, the Duke of Deception is going and, and whispering in Hitler's ear. And getting Hitler to, to go do things. And then it's like he shows Hitler is delusional because the Duke of Deception is actually manipulating him. Right. So Marston used those as kind of a way to set up this cosmos. Now, later writers, um, they don't always like this very much. Like the messiness of it is, you know, this George Perez uh, comes in in the 1980s and he's like, let's actually make them all Greek. Let, let's actually make the, the mythology consistent. And he takes it in a different direction and basically gives Wonder Woman all of these mythological foes. So when people complain about Wonder Woman's villains, I'm like, look, Wonder Woman has every mythological beast from Greek mythology as her villains. <laughs> so I don't want to hear any complaints about that. This is carried through to the Avengers, right? Because they use Viking or Norse uh, mythology and in, in very clearly in where those gods become characters or or a lot of the superheroes are based on like Thor right I mean that's a that's a Viking god uh, Thor right yeah yeah now that's that's the other side Craig and uh, Dr Albert I'm going to forgive you that's Marvel versus for DC doing, for mixing Marvel and DC no it's okay it's okay well yeah interestingly you know I mean Thor um, Thor very much is a product of the Cold War. There's a lot of um, sort of anti-Russian stuff in the early Thor comics. But yes, they use that, that sort of Viking mythology. I think mythology getting into the different comic book worlds makes sense because really superheroes are kind of the modern Hercules and right. the modern stories that we tell of heroes. Uh, Shazam is another one that has the various mythological beings behind him. And Shazam started out as a ripoff of, of Superman. Oh, um, the first, in fact, so the earliest, he was called Captain Marvel originally, 
in the 40s, and DC sued over a copyright infringement because you've got this big guy in a cape and a you know red versus blue suit, and they won the lawsuit, and they had to retire those characters. The Marvel family eventually retired. DC bought those characters, and after a certain number of years, reintroduced them in the 70s. There's all I, I love the kind of corporate history behind these stories. Like, oh, you as a reader, you're like, oh, here's a new superhero. Oh, they brought back Shazam. And then you realize there's a vicious lawyer fight <laughs> behind the whole thing. <laughs> I was wondering about that, the, the corporate interest in all this, because I assume in the 40s with Wonder Woman, that had to be a hard sell to to DC, right? To get them to publish it? Or what is it something that they were forward thinking about immediately? They actually saw this as an opportunity. And there were other female heroes during the Second World War, some of whom have vanished into obscurity. I mean, we all know War Nurse, right? War Nurse! No! 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 No, no. no of course not! But she, it was this British comic about this, because, you know, the main role that women had played in the army was a nurse. So she was like this nurse superhero, and her, her like outfit was almost like Wonder Woman's, except instead of a tiara, it was like a nurse hat, and she had superpowers. And that character did not survive much long after the war. I mean, some of these just kind of drop off. But no, Wonder Woman was, was popular enough that, you know, she inspired competitors and, and others who were uh, copying her. But here's the thing about William Moulton Marston. I, I didn't mention this. He was also a lawyer. <laughs> Unlike the other creators of comics who often got exploited and ripped off and never got royalties for what they created, he wrote up um, agreements that said DC had to publish this comic at least four times a year or the rights revert to him or his heirs. Wow. It's still in place, according to his granddaughter, Christy Marston. That's brilliant. It is so brilliant. You know, the Marston family did not get rich from it. They didn't get a lot of copyright, et cetera. But they, he has never been erased as the creator. And they have always, they take a lot of pride in being connected to that. Um, you know, and even after his death, his widow, Elizabeth Marston, used to call DC or go to the offices and complain if they had storylines she didn't like. Like, you've got to have more women in this. You know? Did did William Marston did did he live to see it become famous? He did, uh, but he dies in I think uh, 1947, if I recall correctly. And Elizabeth Marston lived until the 1990s, um, oh, wow. and they still um, two of their children are still living. They, the whole family has has taken some pride in that connection. The contemporary Wonder Woman movies. Is that true to the storyline in general? Is is are they talking about new issues in that? Does it stay as a as an issue of female empowerment, or is it has it is it Hollywood and just Hollywood? You know, I, I actually I'm a, I'm a fan of the of the of the movies. I think uh, they were very intelligently adapted. They might not be quite how I would have done it, but I'm I'm not a director. <laughs> Uh, but Patty Jenkins, um, you know, she was a fan of the 70s show. She read some of the comics in the 70s. And I feel like she did a very intelligent adaptation of a lot of the themes, the cosmic themes. You know, the theme in the first movie about, well, I want to end war. Mm. That is very true to Marston's idea that these, you know, these... Um, champions of love and peace would try to tackle war. And so at first I was disappointed that they put it in World War One rather than World War Two. But the more I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, they called World War One the war to end all wars. Right. And in some ways, unlike World War Two, that had all of this sort of fascist ideology, et cetera, underneath it. World War One is a lot about just pure nationalistic aggression, yep. right? 
Um, so what a good setting for that. And the second one I was not quite as strong as the first one. I know everybody has their opinions about it. Uh, I actually liked it. I liked it a lot. It was much more a nod to the 70s show and some of the 80s comics. But it also had the theme of deception. And if you listen very carefully to the dialogue, there's a line about the god behind this this evil artifact that supposedly grants w- wishes but really puts people in a bad place. It's the Duke of Deception behind it. Oh. And that was that was a nod to that original Duke of Deception. So the first one is about love and peace. And the second one is really about truth and honesty, um, overcoming deception. And those are classic themes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's also a, a, a sense of female empowerment in both of them. Um, not feminist superiority, not, not female superiority in any way, but just trying to have that, here's a character who's well-rounded, who is strong and all these things, but also compassionate and has heart, um, which I think Marston would have, would have really liked that. Let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about Disney princesses. Okay. Can you talk about the role they play today in society and, and maybe how portrayal of princesses has changed in, in, in Disney movies through history to contemporary times. All right. Now I have to ask you, uh, Dr. Albert, what made you think about Disney princesses and all this? Our producers were very excited okay. to have you on the on the show, and they wanted to talk about Wonder Woman and then Disney princesses. I just wondered if you had a niece or something who was really into the <coughs> Disney princess, because a lot of I have a niece who was really into Disney princesses. And my wife, when she was growing up, loved Disney princesses, yeah. and I still think she has a kind of borderline uh, uh, obsession with Ariel, the the Little Mermaid the little princess. Mermaid. Yeah, very. And good. both of us enjoy. I mean. I'll probably lose some Instagram followers on this, but both of us enjoy the the snow princess. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, from Frozen. 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 Yeah, yeah. And you know, Mulan is probably my favorite. I, I haven't have seen Mulan. Uh, well, I mean the cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And I uh, the cartoon, and I, I like the action movie, but the the cartoon is good. But it seems like it seems to to pl- this idea of female empowerment and leadership and and power exist in the Disney movies as well for for princesses. And it's really an interesting topic because of how they've changed over time. And I think the princess story, if you think about stories for girls um, in the 1930s, which is when Snow Snow White, the first Disney princess movie was made, there are women's stories at that time. Hollywood made movies actually called The Woman's Picture, um, melodramas that center around female journeys, often with family, emotion. Sometimes they're love stories, but they're not always romances. They don't always end well, but there's a whole genre of that. And then Disney kind of invents a girl's, like a girl's movie almost, you know. It's not that it's it's not appealing necessarily to boys. It has lots of things for them too. But there's a, wo- there's a woman, there's a girl at the center of it. Um, and folklore, you know, the, the princess story had had given girls something to be at the center of, but they aren't always as active, right? Mm. You get to the point in the story where the princess falls asleep and then the prince does all the the action and stuff. And what's interesting with some of the, the changes that Disney's making in the 90s with some of their, their Disney princesses is you have these stories where the girls are taking a more active part, where the princess is more active. Even, even though Aladdin is, he's the focus of the film, Jasmine is a very active character. Like the princess is a very active character. Um, and Ariel is a very active character. And then we get into Mulan where she's taking on a traditionally male role. And there's a whole storyline there. And what's the one um, where Disney and Pixar work together? Brave. I'm really Yo. fond of that. The little Scottish one. Yeah. Scottish girl. And and she's sort of 
she's in charge of the action through the whole movie and it's actually about her and her mother you know so i think it's really interesting to look at disney princesses and see they've always kind of been a story where girls could see themselves in it but the what the roles that girls play or the roles the princess plays throughout that have kind of become more and more active you know they don't necessarily need saving and by the way, I brought my mask today that has a picture of Wonder Woman, who is a princess, of course. And it says, not all princesses need to be saved. It's <laughs> awesome. Does it, I mean, you gave an example earlier where, I mean, it clearly works, right? Like, there, there are little girls that, that see this and are now empowered, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it is something that society needs to continue to, to, to give hope and inspiration to, to, to folks that might not think that they can do this when they look around and it's so male dominated or still so much of a patriarchy in, in the American institutional settings. Well, and not just girls. Let me say, I, I know a lot of women who um, loved the first Wonder Woman movie who've told me that and they're not comic book people, but, and they're like, I didn't expect to like this movie so much, but to see an action movie where there's not just like one action hero, but like all the Amazons charging these German soldiers and it's like all women. How often do we see that? And let me just also put a plug in because Marston would want me to. I think it's good for boys to have this too. And yeah. it's really cool when I when a little boy comes up to me and I've got Wonder Woman stuff on or something and he's like, I love Wonder Woman. And I'm like, you are going to be a great husband one day. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. You are going to play well with girls. You know, you're going to be a good coworker to women one day. That's really cool because you identify with Wonder Woman. And it helps decrease this, this toxic masculinity that's so prevalent in American culture. And isn't that exactly what William Moulton Marston wanted? As a psychologist. <laughs> I know. Oh, man, it makes so much sense. We're reaching the end of the episode, and I wonder if you feel comfortable, could you tell us how and why you got into this line of research and teaching? Uh, what led to your particular research and teaching interest? Dr. Albert, I'm a big geek. That's the main thing. Um, <laughs> we all are, right, when we get into this field. Um, so I have always enjoyed comics. I read comics when I was a little kid. I watched Wonder Woman when I was a little girl, and I've always liked popular culture. And um, I saw... Um, well, I've, I've written about movies, and I've written, I mentioned to you earlier before the podcast, I've written about 17th century theater and, and actresses and acting and and the book trade, and those were always really interesting, but I thought, well, why not turn it towards this popular culture that I kind of love as a fan? And I had an opportunity to write, uh, I saw an opportunity to write about Wonder Woman and Nazis, and t- to be honest, I like had all the comics. Uh. Like, I have the original comics from the 1970s. Get out of here. As a historian, I didn't have to just go to an archive. I was like, hmm, the archive is in my apartment. Uh, You still have them? I still have them. Oh, my gosh. But what that did is because I have the original comics and not just the uh, reproductions, I have the letters written to the uh, comics by fans. They're published, and the editors would respond. So I got to do something that, not to toot my own horn, but there wasn't a comic book historian who had done this before where I took the, the back and forth between the editors and the writers and the fans, which is almost like an early form of social media discourse yeah. over the comics. I used that to talk about the fan reactions to these storylines and then how the editors or writers would defend or explain them. Uh, which was kind of a unique thing to do, but I could only do it because I truly was a geek who still had all these comic books. Now, do you do you use comic books when you teach, or is it research solely? I have used them. Um, for example, I've used 
some serious comic books. We call those graphic novels. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. Like Mouse, which is uh, M-A-U-S. Um, it's about the Holocaust, actually. It's about the experiences of Jews during World War II. Uh, the man who wrote it, his father had been um, in a camp. And so it's really his father's story. But he tells the whole thing through a metaphor whereby the Jews are mice. And, um, you know, the Nazis are cats. And they're catching them. And so he shows, he's able to talk about these horrible things, but it's mice, so it's a little, there's a little bit of distance. And then he kind of uses this, extends his metaphor. So when the Americans come to liberate the camps, they're dogs. They're dogs getting rid of the cats, oh. persecuting the mice. Um, but, you know, that's a very interesting um very interesting graphic novel. So I have, I have used them. There's a one called Abina and the Important Men, which is a graphic novel about a, a woman in 1870s Ghana who challenges the British on whether or not she's a slave. She takes this case to court. And that's a beautiful graphic novel to introduce students to her story. The students respond to this? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So folks, if you're listening and you want to learn about comic books in the classroom, you should apply to Augusta University's Department of History... <laughs> Anthropology, anthropology and, and philosophy. philosophy. That's right. The political philosopher in me always wants to put philosophy before anthropology. I, can I apologize. That. Uh, this has been an awesome episode. I'm. I could just keep. I could just. I'm going to take some of your classes. I think because I, <laughs> I, I don't even have much responses. I'm just like, oh, interesting. Because I'm like, wow, this is fascinating cool. stuff. It's super fast. Thank you so much for for being on the show with us. Out there, make sure you follow us on social media. Like us, subscribe, share, comment, email. We are at beyond underscore bias underscore podcast on the gram. Our YouTube channel is beyond bias podcast channel. Feel free to email us at, you guessed it, beyond bias podcast at gmail.com. And of course, follow me, your host, Dr. Craig Albert, on all typical flat platforms. That's Dr. Craig D. Albert on those social media platforms. Dr. McClellan Nugent, is there a way for listeners to follow or keep up with you and what you're doing? Yeah, you can follow me at Dr. McNuge on Twitter, D-R-M-C-N-U-G-E. That's probably, probably the best way. Awesome. And we will post that in the show notes as well, as well as uh, the webpage to your program, if you don't mind that. Great, yeah. Awesome. And as always, we end with a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, the eminent social and political philosopher quote the greatness of america lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation but rather in its ability to repair its faults that's it everybody be nice to someone today and know that you are loved